Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag. And I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right? I mean, no, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays a means floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get a mean in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Tom, favorite city of gastronomy? I'm going to go with Panama City, and it's probably the only one that I've been to, unlike you, Kevin, which if there's a bingo card, I think you've gotten like 18 bingos of gastronomy cities. Oh, well, let me clarify the question, Tom. If there was no official UNESCO directory and you just got to be the czar of the world and named the ultimate city megapolis Xanadu of gastronomy, what what would it be? Oh, well, then... It's going to be Miami. I just got back from Miami, had some great meals, and uh, I'll pick that. Well, the answer is Tokyo. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm John McLaughlin. I'm Tom Haberstroh. Tom, we're in Tucson. We're not in Tucson. The show is in Tucson, UNESCO City of Gastronomy. And we're down to the final four. Uh, this is an improbable final four, and not improbable from the standpoint of Buddha, who I think we all expected. Oddly improbable, but kind of sort of not improbable, because I did have Sarah in my top four. So, but uh, we, as we know, she was eliminated way, 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 way long time ago, worked her way back through the loser's bracket of Last Chance Kitchen, and is now cooking her ass off. We have Damar, who was not picked highly in the draft, and Evelyn, who was sort of upper middle. Those are our four. They are in Tucson. 
They are cooking with cactus in obscure Sonoran chiles. They are picking their way through Mexican gardens. They are being treated to Maria at judge's table. And they are cooking for the ultimate prize in competition cooking, Tom. Top chef. Well, Maria... What a welcome surprise that is. I should have known why they chose Tucson, Kevin. It's because it is the city, the patron saint of, of the Tucson gastronomic city of, uh, of the world is Maria. Maria, our favorite, um, one of our favorites on Top Chef. She's lovely and she was able to come onto the show and I'm really excited that she is back on Top Chef. And it was, um, you know what, we, we kind of uh, ragged on Tucson a little bit and played some jokes last week, but I thought I learned a lot in this episode. And even though Tucson isn't across the world on this Top Chef universe, I thought it was a pretty cool spot for them. I, I learned quite a bit, and I was really, uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the challenges here. So I was actually, you know what, pleasantly surprised about Tucson. Likewise, my big note is had a little fun at the show's expense. They've gone to some exotic locations. They. I think for COVID reasons, had to stay domestic. They went to Tucson. Yeah, we, we, we had some fun. But the truth is, I, I love this episode. Uh, it felt they had a great sense of place in the episode. Uh, that Mexican garden. I mean, I, I, I think working, you know, working with um, the, the, the chiltepin, working with the cactus, working with the guajillo chilies and the carne seca. Um, I, I, I just, it was great. I, I thought that, they asked the perfect amount of, of sort of conformity and individuality of the chefs and the two challenges. Really, really love this all around. And honestly, and clearly the contestants were inspired. They turned out great food. It was one of those episodes, Tom. You're not going home for cooking poorly. You're going home for not cooking transcendently. Uh, that is how thick this competition is right now. We started a quick fire with carne seca, which is kind of uh, – Elevated, what do we want to call it? Is it, is, is it Sonoran beef jerky, but kind of elevated because it's not something you're going to yank off the store, you know, yank off the shelf at the quick trip? Literally elevated, Kevin. Literally elevated. What was that thing in the sky that was like holding it held up by a crane? Is that real? I've never seen such a thing. I guess you want sort of it to absorb the air. Sunlight? Just like maximum sunlight? I have no idea. I mean, when you do see that, when you go sort of see the way, like, like where were we? We were in Namibia and South Africa. Like, like when the way they they hang jerky, you just sort of drape it over a clothesline. You want it to get air when you're truly sort of drying beef. There's Howard. Hi, Howard. Howard is in the house. That's a good boy. That's a good boy. Very sophisticated studios here. Big fan of beef jerky. Howard is. Yes. We started with the beef jerky challenge or the carne seca challenge as it was. And they turned out four very yummy looking dishes. You want to start with, um, let's start with Evelyn. I feel like this is somewhat of a home game for her. Uh, she is obviously a Houstonian, not a Tucsonian, Tucsonian, but she has done incredible things with Mexican cooking since the very outset of the show. Tucsonite? Is it a Tucsonite? A Tucsonite? A Tucsonian? Tucsoner? This is a conundrum that we're in right now. I don't know. It is a Houstonian, but is it a Tucsonian? But it's Tucson. It's not Tucson. Tucsonian. Tucsonian? Oh, the correct demonym for a local is a Tucsonan. Tucsonan! 
Tusanen. Interesting. Tusanen. Tusanen. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go with Tusanen. Creamy grits with a, a chayote relish. She toasted up the cuajillo chili to really get, because I think that's what you want to do. You want to toast that pepper up. And then yeah, that's when you kind of add the carne seca. She did a chayote relish. Chayote is sort of a, it's a very mild, squashy, green squashy looking thing. It's a little, it's a fruit but it's more of a cucumbery kind of thing. There's not a lot going on there, but it's very delicate. Um, she threw some yuzu in there to get some acid. Um, and that was her quick fire challenge. Um, Buddha did an upside down tostada, Tom. An upside down tostada. With a, also with a guajillo chile, some goat cheese, and, and obviously the carne seca. Uh, was dinged for having a greasy tostada. Mm. Yeah, because he didn't get the right cook on the first time he did the tostada. So I kind of feel like he rushed this one on the second one. Uh, I liked his idea, always Buddha, just coming up with like a creative way to present um, without sacrificing the actual food. Yes, he, Tom, he leads the league in quotation mark dishes, quote, upside down tostada. <laughs> Right. Everything yeah. bagel something or, you know, it's it's, it's always he, he, the old quotation mark dish. Yes. Buddha with quotation marks. I'm just going to put quotation marks on his name in my notes here. He he you know what? I give him points for the, the creativity, um, the grease. I could kind of tell. I don't know if you caught that watching this episode. It just seemed like it had a little bit of um a little bit of wetness on top of it that I was like, uh-oh, I hope that dries in time or fries in time before it goes onto the dish, but it did not. I like a greasy tostada, man. I'm sorry. I like a greasy. Oh, really? Na- I love my nacho chips dripping in oil. I like a, I'm, I, I like my grease. Like a potato chip, like if you get a- Not a potato chip, but a, something about the corn in the grease that I really like. Like it's almost like buttery popcorn. We had that question last week about what what is a food peculiarity of one of your families or friends. And I, it dawned on me, Kevin, that you didn't mention your your greatest food peculiarity, which is the cereal with half and half. Oh, absolutely. That's mine. You're going to eat breakfast cereal. If you're going to ingest those sugar carbs, you damn well want to do it with half and half. And frankly, you could go heavy whipped cream as well. I mean, heavy cream. You could wow. Do that well. But half and half <laughs> at the very least. There's a reason they have all this like cereal milk, soft serve ice cream fad in the last 10 years. There's a reason for that because cereal milk is the best milk. And if you're going to do it in creamy and delicious, you want to kind of up the fat content there. I don't want skim milk. Can you imagine drink, eating cereal with skim milk? It's like eating cereal with water. Kevin, I was deprived as a child. I was always a skim milk drinker. I blame my mother for for growing us up on skim milk. And then when I grew up, I decided to try some 2%. And then eventually I was like, you know what? Why why ever go back to skim? Once you go percentages or non-skim milk, you never go back. And you, hey, greasy tostada, heavy cream with my breakfast cereal, and whole yolk, no whites, scrambled eggs. Absolutely. I love eating Kevin Arnett's food. The next one is going to be the heavy cream with my raisin bran. Kevin, I got to ask, what type of cereal with the cream or the half and half? As a rule, I don't eat breakfast cereal. It's just, let me talk about empty calories. I think, well, it's different. Like the question, which cereal is best accentuated by half and half is a different question than just best breakfast cereal. I love the Fruity Pebbles. Um, I love a Golden Grams. I'm I'm Cookie Crisp, the usual that I think most eight-year-olds would like. Cookie Crisp and heavy cream, baby. Oh, man. (laughs) However... Nothing, no cereal is best amplified by its dairy product than Apple Jacks. 
Mm, I haven't had Apple Jacks in Wait, a long time. Wait, these are not breakfast cereals. I'm sorry. These are not. These are dessert cereals, Kevin. There are two different things. There's breakfast cereal and then there's dessert cereal. What you're describing is candy cereal. Fruit Loops, Fruity Pebbles, Apple Jacks. I didn't say Fruit Loops. This, this isn't breakfast cereal. Are you a child, Kevin? Golden Grahams is the best pick. I can imagine it that is. being phenomenal. That was the one sugar cereal allowed in my house was Golden Grahams. For some reason, in my mother's logic, it didn't. It somehow got classified as semi-healthy rather than just garbage. It's monochromatic. That's Even, it. You know what I mean? I think it's something Graham. I don't know if it's, it's, there's no artificial color. It's just kind of something. It was the one technicality in our household. It was classified with Honey Nut Cheerios as in sort of right at the threshold of acceptability. I just wasn't imagining Kevin eating Cheerios, plain Cheerios with heavy cream. I think that would be a waste of the heavy cream. <laughs> so that's why I get it now. It's kind of more like a treat. No one likes real Cheerios. The only people who eat real Cheerios are those like like babies in the back seat in their car seat with a little baggie that mom has given them. Nobody <laughs> I was just going to say my kids eat regular Cheerios. Nobody likes Cheerios. If you're going to do Cheerios, you do Honey Nut Cheerio or some variation. That's exactly right. Souped up, turbocharged Cheerio. I'm sorry for the detour. I just needed no. to I needed to get it in there that in case people are coming late to the show, they got to know about your half and half and cereal hack. Eat breakfast cereal with half and half, always. Damar uh, got grilled avocado with a carne seca vinaigrette, which I really like the idea of, a fried tortilla, grilled corn. Not a huge fan of the grilled avocado. How about you? Nah. I'm okay with like the buttery avocado, but not, not I don't really need a grilled avocado. And when he when he was asked about it, like Padma was like, why'd you grill the avocado? He didn't have like a totally great answer. You like the toasted on the outside, but I don't I don't like the consistency of a toasted avocado. Other than you get the char, I don't know that you really get much from a grilled. I mean, what is what is what is open fire due to avocado? I could be wrong here. I don't know, but it's a little fatty, so maybe it kind of uh, gets a little crusty, uh, an outer crust, a nice little toast on the outside. But I've never, never needed to grill my avocado, but I appreciate the idea, and it just needed some texture, apparently, um, from our guest judge. And I think the real winner for me, and it was the winner for this for this uh, quick fire, was Sarah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything better than a just a goopy morel mushroom. I mean, it looked so good. And I'm so glad that she did this. And I really felt that of all the people in this episode, I felt like Sarah had the best overall performance starting with this quick fire. She's cooking really creatively, a carne seca gravy. Morel mushrooms are so meaty and beefy and yummy and substantial over polenta with a soft egg. What is better than a soft egg? Um, May, may Anthony Bourdain, rest in peace. He was the huge fan of the soft egg over anything. Uh, and then a blackberry salsa. And she, we're seeing a lot from Sarah right now. We really are. She's coming off of the elimination challenge win, moves right into a quick fire challenge win. And then as we'll see in the elimination of this episode, uh, showed out again. Yeah. Shout out to Carlota Flores, the local celebrity there um, coming from the what was the oldest uh, continuing Mexican restaurant uh, in America or close to that. I think like the oldest Mexican restaurant that's been run continuously by the same family, I think, perhaps. Props to her. And I, I love the fact that Buddha studied Native American and Mexican cuisine ahead of this because it's the most Buddha thing. Like, of course, Buddha like went and got his master's in uh in Native American and Mexican cuisine before he did this. He is an absolute scholar of Top Chef. And it showed that he knew a little bit more, maybe a little bit more range than we typically know of him with this tostada, but he obviously couldn't get that grease right. So 
Um, I was I was really interested to learn more of the Sonoran Desert. It's the most biodiverse uh, desert on the planet. Uh, I did not know that, and I guess it it felt like an oxymoron to me, Kevin. But now that I think about it, if you go to a desert, it's not completely bereft of any sort of uh, life there. But cactus, I've never really had a cactus dish before. Kevin, do you like cactus or is it kind of like a, a, not gimmicky, but something that's out? No, of- no. I mean, it's, it's, it's earthy. I mean, it has certain properties of a pepper. Obviously I don't find it nearly as metallic tasting. I've never been one who loves like peppers. Um, but, uh, no, no. I mean, you, you find it in the Aliskan food, you find it in Sonoran food. Um, I've cooked with it once, not terribly successfully. Uh, and the elimination challenge was very simple. It was, you're going to make two dishes, one savory, one sweet. One must include cactus. The other one, uh, chiltepin, uh, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly. And, and, and chiltepin is a, you, now you are the chili uh, pepper expert, Tom. And yes. I, I know chiltepin is just looking like little berries. You almost would miss that they are a pepper. What do we know about the chiltepin in terms of like the hierarchy of peppers, which obviously you have done great work with, um, both for fun and obviously to raise Tom, how much have you raised for ALS at this point? Uh, about a million dollars. Yes. Not bragging, but about a million dollars for uh, ALS research. And I have never had a chill pen, but it is um, very hot. It is measuring between 50,000 and 16 – or sorry, 50,000 and 1.6 million Scoville units. So like think about a, ha- uh, a jalapeno, anywhere from a jalapeno heat – to basically a Carolina Reaper. Like this is serious range here. So now, where is the habanero, which I've always known I'm an, I'm not knowledgeable in this. Isn't that kind of among like among the ones we know the one of the hottest? Yeah, it's uh it's probably like two or three times hotter than a jalapeno. And that was the the pepper of choice. Like when Mina Kimes did it, Pablo Torre did the pepper. What about challenge. the habanero though? The habanero. The habanero, yeah. The habanero is like three times hotter than a jalapeno. Wow. Uh it is it is really hot. And so where does this sit? It sits between those two? I think it's a little bit hotter. Uh it, it just has a lot of range. Like depending on the Gosh. one that you get, it uh it can be kind of mild, but it could be just like you're gonna feel that the second time when it goes out of your body very, very badly. So um, here's a little write-up here that I found. In Mexico, the heat of a chiltepin is called arrebatado, which means rapid or violent because while the heat is intense, Kevin, it is not very enduring. This stands in contrast to the domesticated Pekin variety, which is the same size as the wild tepin but is oval-shaped and delivers a decidedly different experience. It also says... Um, since this pepper is harvested from wild stands in the Mexican desert, the heat of the level of the heat level of the fruit can vary greatly from year to year, depending on the amount of natural rainfall that occurs during the time the fruits are forming. During drought years, fruit heat levels can be weak, and during normal rainfall years, the highest heat levels are produced. And there's a large variation between the heat levels of the green fresh fruit, which are pickled in vinegar, red ripe fresh fruit, and dried whole fruit and dried fruit with the seeds removed. And their heat levels are ranged from mildest to hottest in order. And around 50 tons are estimated to be harvested commercially annually, primarily in Sonora. So that is your write-up on Chiltepin. That's an impressive little pepper, isn't it? It is. It's tiny, man. I, I really, it packs a big punch. So Sarah gets 30 extra minutes. That was her reward for winning the quick fire. Uh, she is prone to overthinking. However, I think here it served her extremely well. She conceived a really creative dish, Tom. I mean, it was really, I think, the most out of the box of the four. 
in terms of the savories. I mean, she says she's going to work with lamb, which she loves doing, and she's going to pickle the chiltepan and make a chimichurri. She's also going to create a chiltepan vinaigrette for a grape salad and then smoked yogurt. I think we remember early before she got eliminated, yogurt was sort of a, a signature of hers and a lot of protein dishes to kind of cut. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Hello, listener. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that we at Cinephobe love our pets. Zach and Boogie are inseparable. I've got two cats and a dog. And Amin is giving his best ass on performance to convince dog owners that he loves their pet. Hey, Noodle. Hey, boy. How you doing? And Noodle's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Which is why today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. For many pet parents, summer is all about making travel plans like adventuring through the national parks, visiting pet-friendly beaches, or road tripping across the country. Wherever your journeys take you and your furry friend, you can help protect them along the way with the plan from ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for your eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And provide some, you know, some creaminess, some mildness. Uh, but that's what she did with that uh, that dish, and the judges loved it. Loved it. Said it was the best of the eight dishes. Kirsten Kish said. Yeah, Kirsten Kish was like, I, I hate lamb, and yet this is my favorite dish I had the entire night. I mean, that is high praise from Kristen Kish. And I would say also a very Greek dish this is with the lamb and then the yogurt, um, like almost tzatziki-like. Um, and so you know I loved everything about this dish. And as soon as it went down on the plate, I was like, my mouth was just salivating. I was drooling everywhere because of this thing. So I was extremely excited to see that from her. And she also did the cactus tart um, with the ice cream. And the issue there was she had a, a battle, an absolute battle with the ice cream machine. And the churner. Yes. Yeah, the churner. It wasn't a total disaster, but I think it just wasn't the right temperature and the ice cream was melted. And um, I think that little ding that she had was the difference between her uh, being in the middle and her winning it because that that entree dish was just tremendous. Yeah, it was widely regarded as possibly the best of the eight dishes that were prepared. Well, yeah, Tom said it was like a three Michelin star dish or something like that. I mean, that was – I mean, he she just – if there was a best dish award, she definitely won it with that one. I mean, I know I'm a broken record on this, Tom, but boy, has the show missed her this season. You know, they had a great chef with a great presence in front of the camera. Uh, by the way, can we talk about the weird superimposing – Confessional? Yeah. Like what was going on there? Were those filmed and then against a fake background? Well, I guess the thing is when they're filming it in the actual studio in LA or Bravo, like the Bravo kitchen, they are there. But since they're on the road, they may have not been able to do those confessionals back at the normal studio, I guess. No, but this looked odd. I did notice that too. Well, whatever. The production folks can let us know. But it wasn't a huge distraction, but it was a little bit odd. Um, Sarah's and um, DeMar's in particular looked weird. Can I ask you a question about um, Sarah here? Um, I noticed one point in the cook, she asks Buddha how to do liquid nitrogen and Buddha obliged and gave her the answer. So, Kevin, what do you think about that? He did and he didn't. Just add like it's not exactly it. great guidance. Just <laughs> yeah. add it is I'm not going to be a dick. So I don't want to say figure it out <laughs> yeah. on your own. But I would not say that just add it is a great clinic in liquid nitrogen don't you think i mean that was my interpretation was he was as polite just turn it on yeah yeah. just press the button he was a very politely unhelpful person i'm cool with that this is the finals right like if you don't know how to do liquid nitrogen at this point don't try to do liquid nitrogen right she got by it wasn't a beautiful ice cream but it was uh she 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 did did not get it did not was not enough to go home uh she used um a gorgeous so so in terms of you were talking about cactus, the saguaro cactus is the what I call the cartoon cactus. 
You know, the one with like the funny arms that looks like like you'd see in a Looney Tunes cartoon or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the, what I call the cute cactus. And I we just planted some back in my backyard, which hopefully in the next several years will become huge cartoon cactus with the little arms. So the flower on the Seguro is that really rich fuchsia color uh, that the judges were exclaiming on many of the dishes, right? Like it's it's just that real pop. And so for Sarah, she used the saguaro fruit uh, to make an ice cream. Um, however, hers wasn't that that, that big saguaro, um, the fuchsia. Uh, but that is sort of the color that we're seeing on a lot of these dishes. It's that that sort of blossom, the, the saguaro flower. Yeah, and again, I guess that she was going to be the winner. Um, Evelyn didn't have any mistakes in hers, but I, I thought that the the strengths were far outweighing the weaknesses on her dishes. Sarah, I actually guessed that she was going to be the 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 champion of this elimination challenge. Oh, interesting. Let's go to Buddha. Buddha uh, finished also finish, finished in the middle. He does the tom yum soup. I love a good tom yum soup, so I was so happy to see him do this dish. And it's just a smart use, right? Because you want to highlight the chili. There's no better way to do that to me. I mean, the, the Tom Yum is such a great kind of canvas for that, a soup. He creates this gorgeous dumpling that everybody's raving about. He does silken tofu, which is a nice mild counter to a, you know, a very pungent and, and spicy Tom Yum. Calamari noodles. Who doesn't love that? Some prawns. Mm. Uh, just decorated the perimeter of the dish with these desert flowers. I mean, it was really <laughs> kind of something. It was really cool. Right? When Chef Kish is just saying like, "Hey, I, I need to, I need to learn how to do that dish or n- need to do that dumpling," you know you're doing well. When she's you know taking notes here, so yeah, he he knocks this one out of the park again. Not, I mean, the thing about Buddha, you might ding him just because he's got these like presentation little gimmicks to it that might seem like gimmicks. But it's really not superficial. All of them, when he does it, really seem to serve a purpose. And I think that's really felt by the judges that when they when he presents those dishes, they're wowed, but not in a very like cheap way. I think he just he just knows what he's doing on this one. And and so he does this dish that I I'd have a tough time turning that one down for the lamb that Sarah did, but it it was right up there. It was so cool. Calamari noodles. Uh, a turnip dumpling. It was super clever, and I think a great vehicle for this for the for the pepper. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, sometimes plating uh, can be pretentious, um, or, or or in service of something other than you know, just really service of for effect. I don't think he does that. Like, I think his sort of highfalutin presentations are rooted in something real. And here it was place and desert. It felt totally natural. I don't think he was just going for show. And I, I, I feel like consistently about his his presentation and plating. Um, his dessert, cactus cake, cactus seed ice cream, and a prickly pear snow that was gorgeous. The critique on that was that it just didn't pack as much punch. Yeah, and I'm I was a little surprised that by that because he really doesn't really um, sacrifice flavor all that often, and I thought the the visual was outstanding and the snow probably the texture was was outstanding, but yeah, he comes up short on the on the taste, and um, that's not Buddha like too cold is what is what Tom said. I mean, what does that even mean? I don't. I think sometimes it, like with an ice or a granita, like if it's so cold that you kind of. The, the, the thing on your tongue is not flavor as my temperature sort of overrides flavor. That's my guess. And I'll just say this. I don't like snow cones. I don't like snow cones. 
Yeah, I'm not a big ice guy. I can't do it. I get goosebumps and it just drives me nuts. The shivers whenever I bite into ice cream. So you know what? I take that back. Buddha, I don't like the snow idea. You know, it's too cute. And who likes chewing on ice cream? Well, I don't. I know a lot of people do, but I don't like that. And you know what? It looked very pretty, but it wasn't quite up to the standard of Evelyn, who who did a great job with hers. Was it the Rieno that uh, a few years ago, there was someone who just totally botched the Rieno and Evelyn just did a really great job with hers on this one? I mean, she, she uh, a beautiful. So, so the two, you know, so there are two, there are multiple types of cactus, cacti, right? And the nopales or the nopal is the one, the, the flat one that you see um, versus the one I'm talking about earlier, the saguaro, which is the cartoony tubular one. Um, and so the Nepal is what she did. I mean, that was gorgeous the way she rolled it. It did a, a shrimp puree, kind of diced up some Nepal cactus raw to really kind of keep it front and center and to give it a little texture, the Fresno chilies. And, and I love edible flowers on, on dishes. Um, it's something I don't do as, as much of as I should. But the marigolds just, she, you know, I think one of the knocks sometimes on Evelyn is that her stuff is always delicious, but a little homey, a little safe, a little easy, maybe not as elevated as, as it could be. You could do a taco in your sleep, blah, blah, blah. Right. And here, I, I she to me was a shift test in this week, kind of reacting against constructive criticism from last week that was totally rightful. And, and she kind of took it and ran with it. It was like, okay, you know what? You're right. And it still had every bit the hominess, but it was truly elevated. The Rieno, the, the roll and the wrap in the Rieno. Um, it just, I, I, I loved looking at that dish. I, I really wanted to taste that dish. Of the four, it's the one I was most drawn to. You know, in the NBA, uh, a lot of people like to think that there's this romantic coming home story when, when there's a homecoming for a player going back to his home city. And oftentimes it just... Too much pressure, too many people trying to get to that player, and it just becomes overwhelming. And those homecomings are very rarely successful. You see it successful with LeBron James and then just about nobody else. You saw what happened to Russell Westbrook in in L.A. this year. I think Evelyn, with going from Houston and then going to Tucson, there is every opportunity for her to just melt under the pressure of having these home games. And she hasn't done that at all. And I really want to commend her for that because we see that all the time in Top Chef is they overthink it or they just try to do too much. And here with this the savory dish, I think she just nails it. And she takes something that can be pretty rudimentary or something that isn't, isn't extremely uh, sophisticated and she was able to deliver. So shouts to Evelyn. I mean, she's with this dish, she gets off to a great start. I think she comes from behind because I think when – you look at Buddha and Sarah's savory dish. Um, this one needed to hit the mark, and it did. But I think it was her dessert that won the uh, that won the challenge for her. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not somebody always drawn to curd, and she does this sour orange and sweet lime curd with the saguaro meringue, um, the prickly pear granita. Again, we're not drawn to ice and the basil flowers, and you know, again, we can't taste the food. The only kind of uh, shortcoming of this show, but. Uh, the judges seem to suggest it was the best of the four desserts um, with DeMars as a close second. So, um, and, it, and it apparently was enough to elevate her over Sarah, who had probably the best entree. Um, and it was gorgeous to look at and, and, and really just, uh, just kind of, you kind of capture the challenge. Again, it just felt like Sonora. Um, let, let's talk about DeMar because 
I think, you know, eight dishes, two each. The entree from him seemed to be the only, and again, not a terrible miss. I don't think he gets, I don't think there are many weeks where he'd go home for that dish. I don't know. There's one week prior to this week he would have gone home for that dish. But it was enough. His glazed pork shoulder with the chiltepen prickly pear barbecue sauce, the beans that he overcooked and had to turn into a puree, the pickles with the chiltepen, it, uh, the nopales, it, it just didn't, it didn't work for them. They thought it was a bit of a disjointed, non-assembled or non-cohesive. Um, they loved the sauce. The shoulder, uh, pork shoulder cook was fine, quite good actually. They didn't dislike the pickles, but there's something about it that wasn't integrated. Yeah, it really didn't have that uh, spokes to the wheel or just actually getting everything to put together at one spot. And I think when you look at Damar, like you said, at this stage of the game, it didn't feel like something that you're going to tell your friends about. And that's going to get you sent home. You know, like it's just not a home run dish. He hit a double here. And I think with, with Damar... It's sad to see because I think he could have won this thing. Um, he hit a little bit of a, I don't know, some turbulence over the last few episodes. Um, and we didn't see his best stuff. Like we said last time, he he was someone who said he had, he was keeping stuff in his back pocket for, for, for the finale. And maybe he did have some stuff in his back pocket. But this didn't feel like to me of the two of his two dishes um, visually and just I think the innovation wasn't there. And this dish certainly felt like he put all the ingredients together and didn't really think too much about how to bring it all home and obviously looked like a really well tasting dish that everyone would have enjoyed but at this point in the game with the way that evelyn and sarah and buddha are going uh like gail said he just didn't rise to the challenge with this dish yeah and it, and it cost him in the end his dessert looked fantastic it was it was my favorite look dessert to look at oh yeah uh, i love okay. i love a cake a prickly pear cake with that lovely glaze and then he had these sort of you know various textural toppings the, the cheese uh the saguaro fruit the frozen mango they i mean they loved it tom was caught on camera saying he crushed it the minute you know they brought it out uh, again, I mean, just I, I, I had him ranked as the number two dessert and the number four entree based on judges' reactions. Um, hmm. And but uh, you know, it wasn't enough. Yeah, Demar did his best cooking, uh, kind of mid-season, and um, certainly did fine here. Just I, I think the biggest surprise, however, I, I know Evelyn won the day, but I mean, I think you know, I, I and I'm very excited now to handicap the, the final three with you is, is that Sarah is cooking savory dishes that are comparable with anything we've seen this season, even with Jackson at his best when he was cooking before he went out for front of a house, uh, mismanagement, uh, Tom, I, where are you on the Sarah Evelyn? Let, let's handicap this thing as a little bit of a preview here with the final 15 minutes we have. Where where are you? Buddha has been our our pick for quite a while now. I have had Evelyn as I think a slightly bigger threat than you've had her as, and I still maintain that she has got some serious serious game going on right now, and, and in a region that she knows well. Yeah, she's not making mistakes. She knows her style. She knows her pitches, and she is going to absolutely throw everything that she has in those pitches. My only question is. Kevin, is she a great starting pitcher 
or does she have a fastball closer that she's going to need to have in this last episode? That's my concern is that I I know that she just won this episode. So how could we question her ability to deliver on the biggest stage? And I, I just wonder if Sarah and Buddha have higher ceilings. And therefore, I'm probably going to put Sarah just a tad bit higher on the power rankings than Evelyn, which is, seems crazy to say after she comes off a victory. But I don't know. With what Sarah's doing and the kind of chip on her shoulder that she has because of the Last Chance Kitchen, I've got her pegged a little bit higher than Evelyn and then a distant second behind Buddha because I just think Buddha is, is just as close to flawless in this season as you'll find. Well, maybe Buddha will make a staff meal and then... Sarah or Evelyn can sneak in there. It's possible. <laughs> like, like Buddha, if Buddha were going to go home. Maybe Buddha will make egg salad sandwiches or, 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 I'm sorry, I'm giving, I can't even get to the finale of 19 without, without throwing shade at Shoda for his just disappointing, <laughs> like I, the, the most disappointing finale performance ever for one of the greatest contestants that's ever come through those doors. I just, it is, it is truly, I, I'm still smarting from that, by the way. I know, I know, I can feel it. So yeah. to be semi-serious here for a second, I, I think what, what I'm saying here, though, in, in, albeit in jest, is that elevation is the key to the finale, right? Like, I do think, you know, as much as I think the show embraces all kinds of traditions and a cook from your heart and uh, and all of that, I do think there's still a legacy on this show, which is the finale is for tasting menu style cuisine it is for elevated just just top of the line award-winning three michelin star type stuff and that is still i think the tacit expectation of the judges when you get to a finale they want to be wowed they want dishes served to them that they could imagine stealing taking back to their restaurants and putting them on the menu and they want signature dishes. And uh, it's not a time to do blank in your sleep, right? And I think Evelyn has demonstrated, though, I think this week and, and going forward that she has the capacity to do that. You know, the challenge for her and Sarah, for that matter, um, is is that there's some there's a stage presence to Buddha's food that is pretty remarkable. Now, I think Sarah has a little bit of that, too. And I think we've seen it in the last couple of weeks um, because she's a little scattered and self-deprecating and kind of has this constant interior monologue going. It's easy to mistake Sarah as somehow her food being non-serious when it is deadly serious. And she has no problem, I think, raising the technical features of her dishes. And I, I think we can expect that. But uh, am I right, though, it's still Buddhist to lose? Yeah, it's Buddha's to lose. I'd, I'd still take him over the field here, um, even though Sarah and Evelyn are that good. I just think I, I feel like Buddha's going to come in here with like a sixty-point performance, um, and and maybe I, I get that wrong, but it, it seems like he's got so much confidence and he hits all the right notes. My question to you, though, Kevin, is: Do you think that Jackson deserves to be here? Deserve how? In the sense that when you look at these three finalists, where we were earlier in this season, that Jackson was just mowing down the competition. Is there a part of you that wishes you could see Jackson on this stage or you're very happy? Oh, with yeah, yeah. I mean, deserve, I mean, I don't think he deserves to be here. I mean, he would have deserved to be here had he beaten Sarah in, in, in Last Chance Kitchen. Do I think he could t- 
tomorrow come into the finale as a fourth contestant and, and cook step by step with these other chefs? Yeah, I think he's as good as they are. Yeah. It's like the Phoenix Suns. We could see them next week in the finals, right? But, you know, hey, I mean, uh, do I think they could give either team a go? Absolutely. Uh, that's my, however I am with Jackson is, you know, it's not so much he deserves as I do think he has the game to cook finale quality food. And I think there is an added, there always will be added sympathy. And you and I've talked about this in the past. Someone who goes out for front of the house on restaurant wars, it's a particular, there, there are certain kinds of um, eliminations that will never be fully sort of reconciled, right? Going to being a party, being collateral damage on a team challenge, right? Or a, or a duo challenge where your partner just screws you both. Um, front of the house is that for me as well, that look, it's not that it isn't part of being a great restaurateur in this world is being able to manage the front of the house. But can we just be honest for a second? Because I think the thing is, it's not about being, this is not top maitre d', right? It's top chef. And so from your question's a good one in the sense that, yeah, I would love to see Jackson in a finale situation because I think he could cook his ass off and I think he could give Buddha a run for his money. I think you've Sarah and Evelyn a run for his money and there will always be something a little unsatisfying about an elimination for, Oh, Hey, you didn't schmooze up the diners well enough. Well, you know what? I know Tom, you and I in our social circle have many people who would be excel at the art of hosting. Okay. But that doesn't mean they can cook world-class cuisine. And we know Jackson can and, he got eliminated for not for screwing that up, but for some other task. But that's what I love top by top chef, though. It happens. That's part of the game. You need to not put yourself in a position where you can be. Eliminated. He wanted that. He wanted to be the front of the house. Right? He wanted it. And that was that. Yep. And he had his second chance in Last Chance Kitchen and he didn't deliver. So I just thought, you know, with someone who is that strong in the early going of the season and now that we're at the finale here or about to enter the finale, I just didn't know if you had any reservations about the final three and whether you wish, you know, someone was there that wasn't in that field. But Damar, it was good to see him on this show. And and it's he said he he gained a lot of confidence here. And I think he really um he he just did an outstanding job, exceeded expectations, certainly in our draft. Uh, and I loved having him around. I loved his cool demeanor, um, his voice, his baritone voice. I feel like he could uh, be a nice radio host. Is um, uh, someone who could? I bet. I bet he he was in a very successful choir back in the day, or he should have at least. He was a great chef test. And do I think he deserved to be ahead of Sarah Evelyn here? No. I I thought when when they announced that he was going home, uh, I felt like that was. That was the right call, uh, given what we what we heard from the judges, and it's it's tough to see him go at, at any point when you're whittling it down to four to three. It's going to be tough, and I'm excited for this finale. Yeah, I'm really hoping I can get to Hyde Park next time I'm in Chicago and go to Virtue again. I couldn't get a table, but I would love to have some of Demar's cooking in person at a dinner table. All right, Tom, I'm going to ask you for your pick. Not to over dramatize it, I get the sense of who your pick is, isn't it? Yeah, my my question is right now: Do you take Buddha against the spread? Or you think he's you think he's gonna uh, falter given the handicap points that we're giving him? Like, like basically, is he gonna live up to the hype in this finale? Or do you think that Sarah and Evelyn are gonna take it? I'll take the field. I have Buddha at like forty-seven, but I don't have him above fifty. Forty-seven, thirty-two, twenty-one. Sarah. Nah, maybe higher than that. Okay, I got sixty Buddha, twenty-five Sarah, fifteen Evelyn. That's where I'm at. Oh, you got Sarah ahead of Evelyn for the finale. 
I do. I do. I think her upside is higher than Evelyn's. And in the finale, that's what I'm going for. Although that might be riskier in the sense of mistakes, I think her upside is higher than Evelyn. You're probably right there. I didn't even think about that, right? More time. Evelyn has been the most consistent chef. She doesn't make mistakes, but the finale is not about mistakes. It's about just you you finding your ceiling. Uh, I think I think I'm Buddha. I have just below fifty, so I will take the field over Buddha. But I have Buddha as my most likely to to win. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think there's also part of me that says that Sarah, because she was in Last Chance Kitchen and doing more of these quick fires, I feel like she's got more. Uh, options here in terms of the wow factor uh, entrees that she can actually think through and not have to you know do it in six minutes um, because she wasn't in the regular show. So I kind of feel like she's got some more stuff in her back pocket that she's able to throw. And I don't know that Evelyn and Buddha, um, whether they've just kind of shown their best stuff at this point. I think Sarah's got some more room for improvement here, room to, to deliver. And so that's also going into my calculus is that I think Sarah um, has only like shown like four or five elimination challenge dishes. And she's got so many more that she's got, she can cook up in her head. So I, um, I actually, that's, that's going into my calculus too, is that Sarah has just a little bit more that she can show. Closing thoughts, Tom, before the finale. Looks like Stephanie Izard is back. Looks like Eric Repair is there. Ed Lee in the finale. I didn't see any any other familiar faces in the preview for next week. No, I always love to see Ed Lee, though. I'm very happy about the Ed Lee appearance, yes. Yeah, it seemed like they were a little starstruck by Eric Repair. Me too. I feel like if he walked in, there, he's in my, my top five most intimidating chefs if he, if he was going to walk into the room. So I'm excited for this finale, Kevin. And I'm sorry to say that uh, this season's going to be over next week. I know it was not their best season of Top Chef, but I really am excited to see what Buddha does here because there is a lot riding on this one. Uh, me picking him over the field for the last four episodes or however long it is, he's got a lot of hype going in here, and I can't wait to see what happens. For Tom Haberstroh, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Pack Your Knives.